right. Good morning again. Um, so different generations are going to hear this question and respond to it, I think, in different ways. Um, who's familiar with Robin Hood? Okay. I didn't know him personally. Didn't know him personally. But... <laughs> so, so there's been a whole lot of uh, different, I'll say manifestations of Robin Hood throughout the generations, right? Errol Flynn was the classic Robin Hood. Disney Fox one. Kevin Costner? What? <laughs> what happened there? Remember remember Robin Hood Men in Tights? They made fun of, he said, and I can speak with the British accent. <laughs> Robin Hood. Interesting stories, interesting um, things going on there. Um, do you remember... Who was king in the time of Robin Hood? Well, that's a trick question, isn't it? Because technically, Richard I was king. But his brother John was ruling. Why? Richard was all over the place, okay? Richard I was an actual king in England. Um, he became king in 1189 and was king until his death in 1199. He was going to party like it was 1199, but he died, so he couldn't. Um, he was a great military leader. He had commanded armies since he was 16 years old. Um, and in those 10 years that he ruled, it is said that he was actually in England for six months of that. Six months out of 10 years. Um. Most accounts of his life say that after he became king, all through his reign, um, he was all over the place. Actually, only in the country about six months, but he was still ruling. He was active in defending lands he owned in France. He was also very active in the Third Crusade, fighting in the Holy Land, trying to take back sites and lands there from the Muslim contingency that was ruling there. And if you know anything about the Robin Hood stories... Uh, Robin went rogue and was stealing from the rich and given to the poor because of John's poor rule. Okay, his, uh, Richard's brother, John. John was overseeing things on the home front of England while Richard was out fighting wars and doing whatever wandering kings did in the 12th century. I don't know what that was. but I bring this up because it's a good illustration of what we're going to look at today, uh, which we're calling Introduction Part 2 for Matthew chapter 13. Our focus today is going to be looking at and understanding that which is at the forefront, that which is the main topic of Matthew 13. Anybody know what that topic is? We actually sang about it a lot this morning. It's like David was in my living room picking songs while I'm writing this sermon. The main message, the very main theme of Matthew chapter 13 is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And this kingdom is actually central. It's a central theme of the Bible overall. But Matthew 13 gives us clarity on a certain part of this kingdom. So hopefully this will all make better sense after today. And it will set the table for us to actually get into Matthew 13 next week. So for our public reading, we're going to reread something we read last week. Um, and it's Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 13. So if you would stand as we read this. <clears throat> the words of Jesus, God in the flesh, God incarnate, the King of all kings. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Let's pray. God, it is imperative that we as individuals and we as a corporate body would not be those who see but do not see, who hear but do not understand. 
So we ask you, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit to speak and to change and to move and to teach and instruct and tear down and build up so that we might be more like Jesus and we might understand what this kingdom is all about. We ask for your help and we know that you are our Father and you give good gifts to your children and you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So we ask expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sir. Okay. Sure. So I don't know if y'all heard that. Jason Boland's dad just fell and they took him to the hospital. Let's take a minute to pray for him right now. God, we come to you on behalf of uh, Jason and his family, his dad specifically, and ask that you would do something uh, godlike to touch and to heal his body and give him grace to get through this. God, pray for the family that they would look to you for the grace that they need and that they would see you move in a way that is unmistakably you and that you would get glory from this incident that we might call an accident, God. Have your way and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jason Boland's father fell. He, he was up at uh, Harper Mills here, has been for a while, and they are transferring him to the hospital because, of he, because he fell. So... so <clears throat> If I were to ask you the question, very simple question, what is the kingdom of heaven? How would you reply? And I, I think, I mean, it's, it's, a very, it's a very simple question, but I think there's two big dangers in answering it. I think we're either going to oversimplify it or we're going to overcomplicate it, okay? Because we could dismiss it and not think much of it and just answer pithily, um, or we could ponder it to the point of seeing it as something that's incomprehensible. And as usual, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Now, a very simple answer is that the kingdom of heaven, or as other gospel writers call it, the kingdom of God, is the kingdom where God rules. And that's true. But I think that answer is oversimplistic to say the least. A kingdom is a realm that is ruled over by a king. Again, true. But to find the place where God is not king is impossible. He is literally the creator and thus the master and ruler of the entire universe. Heaven and earth and space and the cosmos and the stars and planets and on and on and on. Ad infinitum, ad nauseum. Um, so he is king everywhere. Wherever something is, God is the king there, and that's everywhere. But in looking at Matthew 13, it's going to be very clear that Jesus is not talking just about the, a place where God is king. He's zeroing into a very specific place in time, and he's explaining that in Matthew 13 as the kingdom of heaven. Now, just a reminder to Matthew, who was writing this gospel, and we'll probably say this every week, to portray Jesus as the Messiah, the King of all things, to his primarily Jewish audience. That's why Matthew was writing this gospel. Matthew would use the word heavens instead of God, knowing that Jewish people had an aversion to speaking the name of God. So when you see kingdom of heavens... Uh, Kingdom of heaven in Matthew, or the heavens is how it's literally translated. Other gospel writers say kingdom of God, and those are interchangeable. I, there was a time in my life when I didn't believe that. I'm like, it's different for a reason, and there's some specific... Matthew was just being very sensitive to his Jewish hearers, his Jewish readers. And it was very common in that time to substitute heavens for God so that they wouldn't have to say the name of God. So in all this kingdom talk... Matthew wants to be appreciated and understood by these Jewish readers, so he calls it the kingdom of heaven, so that they don't stumble over saying the name of God. So, back to what I was saying before that. Jesus, in Matthew 13, is obviously not talking about God reigning from his throne over everything everywhere. In Matthew 13, you're going to see Jesus use very earthy language, talking about a sower, seeds, soil, Grain, 
weeds, harvest, mustard seed, leaven, a treasure, a pearl, and a net. And all these things are particular to us. Humans on earth, right? There's no talking in Matthew 13 about black holes and supernovas and big cosmic university things like that. So the answer to what is the kingdom of heaven is probably here in Matthew 13 a very specific answer. Not a vague, large-scale answer. You tracking with me? Everybody with me? Good. I see some of you. Good. So then... What is Jesus talking about in referencing the kingdom of heaven specifically here in Matthew 13? Well, like most things in the Bible, and we'll talk more about this later, you can't only get that answer from Matthew 13. The Bible, all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, is replete with references to God's kingdom and His plan for that kingdom. So what we're going to do is we're going to fly over kind of quickly kind of do a survey to get an idea about this kingdom principle in the scriptures to set the stage for us to deep dive into it in Matthew 13 starting next week. So we've said a lot through the gospel of Matthew that the Jews were waiting for God to set up his kingdom on the earth to reestablish the glory of God through his people like was seen in the days particularly of who? Who were the great kings of Israel? Two of them. David and Solomon. That was the pinnacle of Israel's existence as a nation. Okay, And God himself set the stage for that time period when David and Solomon were king and that, that nation was so great. God set the stage for that by choosing the people of Israel as his very own. Initially, God did that by befriending one man. Abraham. Right? God called Abraham, actually Abram at that time, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans, call, chal. Um, God called Abram out of there for no other reason than that God chose him. It wasn't because he's like, wow, look at that guy, he's great. Later he would actually say, I chose you because you were the least of all the peoples of the earth. So God made a covenant with Abram, who would become Abraham. And we've revisited that covenant many times through so many different passages that we've explored. And God promises Abraham three things. Offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. That's one thing he promised him, offspring. He promised Abraham the land that Abraham was sojourning on, which is the land of Israel, that we, what we call Israel today. And he promised him in that covenant that through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. That's the three major components of God's covenant with Abraham. Okay, um, And this covenant was an eternal covenant. This wasn't just as long as Abraham was alive, but it was all throughout eternity. Now get that in mind, eternity. These blessings would be true because of God's covenant with Abraham. Remember the, the blood path and Abraham doesn't walk through it. God does twice, basically saying, when you break the covenant, I'll pay the penalty for your disobedience, which we see fulfilled in Christ. But this covenant was an eternal covenant whose terms would last forever. And we know that Abraham did have a son in his old age, Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob would be renamed Israel. And Israel became the father of the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel that became the people, the nation of Israel. And that people um, went to Egypt, the story of Joseph and all that. They went down to Egypt and they were a total of 70 people. And they were in Egypt for 400 plus years. During that 400 years, they multiplied exponentially. They were put into slavery and they languished there until God delivered them to take them back to where? The land that he had promised to Abraham. And what did they call that land? The promised land. Promised land, promised land, however you want to say it, okay? And so God said, I'm going to take you back there. And he had told Abraham, your, your descendants are going to go down and they're going to be uh, enslaved and they'll come back. And he basically gives them a timetable. And he said, and what's funny is, and we won't go there today, just pops in my head. 
He says, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's why they're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. God tells Abraham, these Amorites are going to come in, they're going to occupy this land, they're going to sin a lot, and I'm going to wait until they sin enough for me to judge them properly. Crazy stuff. I don't so, so anyway, the Israelites, the Jews, they won't become Jews for a long, long time after this. But anyway, the Israelites are delivered out of Egypt and they go to the promised land. It takes them 40 years to get there. They take the indirect route because they were um, disobedient during that trip. And once they get there, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, and they complete a conquest of that land. And it's bloody. It's it's yucky, it's war, it's death to men, women, children. It's a lot of hard stuff. But they take control of the land and they move in and they anoint who is king? Nobody. At first. You're right. We'll get there in a second. At first they don't have a king. God is their king. They're a theocracy. Okay? So what we have there is the kingdom of God manifested in the people of Israel in the promised land when they come back from Egypt. They, they capture the land and they are operating under the law and the precepts that God had given them through the, the wilderness wanderings, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch. And God said, this is how you're supposed to live. And God is their king. And so we have on earth visibly... The kingdom of God. Okay? It was to be a theocratic nation. They were to live in such a way, according to this law that they were, which they called a glorious law. Read Psalm 119, which is a love song to the law that talks about how beautiful and how wonderful and how glorious is the law of God. And they were to live according to that law with God as their king, them serving him, him loving them and blessing them to show. God's glory to the nations around them so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his people, which was another. So you got the people of God living in the land of God according to the law of God, giving glory to God so that they might reach out to the world that God created, show God's glory, and all the nations would be drawn in and worship this God. That was the plan. But it doesn't take long for things to get sideways. And we get into the period of the judges. It says, after Joshua died, the next generation didn't know God. And we talked about the cycle of apostasy, right? They would worship a foreign God. God would deliver them into the hands of an oppressor. Then they would cry out to God, the one true God. God would send a judge who would deliver the people. They'd have a, a, a season where they're like, oh, we love you, God. You're great. Then they'd go back into the same thing. It just... Well, after a while, during a time when Samuel was judging the people of Israel, Samuel was judge over Israel. He was a prophet. The people do something bad. They call out for a king. This was a pretty big moment, okay? We saw it on Wednesday night a couple of months ago, I think. 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. That's not nice. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king. To judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now watch this. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that I have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Hmm. According to all the deeds that God had done, 
from the day he brought them up out of Egypt. Now catch that breathtaking statement of God there. They have rejected me from being king over them. We can read over that and be like, oh, that's great. That's big. That's huge. That's a wow moment. In their desire to be like all the nations, Israel literally said, we don't want God as our king. Now, they didn't say that out of their mouth, but that's what their actions were saying. They wanted a person, a present, tangible person to rule over them so that they could be like the nations around them. God's kingdom, God's people don't want to be distinct anymore which is exactly why God had put them in that place with His law so that they would be separate and distinct and that it would attract people and people would be drawn to God. And now they're saying, we don't want to be different. We don't want to be distinct. We want to be like everyone else. Which was exactly not God's plan for them. And to show that, oddly enough, it's Solomon who would later pray this in 1 Kings 8.53, For you, God, separated them, the Israelites, from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. He separated them out of all the nations. He called them out. Be separate. Be distinct. Don't be like everybody else. And what they're calling out for here to Samuel is, We want to be like everybody else. We want a king. Now, how does God... React to that. Does he say, no, I am your ruler. You will not forsake me. No. God gives them a king. Now be careful what we talked about last week. The worst thing that God can do to us is to give us over to what we ask for and want ourselves. And that's exactly what he does for Israel. Okay, I'll give you a king. God did not give them over to be conquered by other nations. Instead, he said, give him a king. And Saul was set up as the first king of Israel. He reigned for 42 years. David followed him and reigned for 40 years. And during David's reign, we've talked about this a lot, God made a covenant with David, the king, which we've talked a lot about in Matthew, in which God promised that one of David's descendants would be on the throne over God's people forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled, he's God talking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So then right after that, who becomes king? Solomon. And Solomon reigned forever, right? No? No? Just, just another 40 years. Then the nation was divided into two and was ruled by bad, mostly bad, some good kings for over 200 years. And then Israel first in the north and then Judah later in the south were conquered and sent into exile. And you may think, well, God let them go into exile because they rejected him as their king. But you never see that statement or that thought in the Old Testament. Their exile is said to be the result of their not giving the land its Sabbaths. And for as many Sabbaths as you didn't give the land, that's how many years you'll be in exile is what he told Judah. So they're out for 70 years. There's those 70 years. Which is technically not obeying their king, but it's not like God says that you deserve to go in exile because you rejected me as your king. Instead, God keeps announcing, even through the exile, his plans for his glory, his people, this land, and his kingdom all through the rest of the Old Testament, including the prophetic writings. All through the prophets, God points to a time in the future when he will send his king, his Messiah, which means anointed one. And definitely infers that kingship clearly. Not just infers, it's there. It's blatantly. The Messiah is the anointed king. And he's going to send his king to reign and rule over all his people for all eternity. 
And the Israelites saw that as God saying that he's going to reestablish their kingdom. Setting up Israel as the dominant world power with God's anointed king on the throne. Bringing the whole world into subjection and making Israel the power of the world. The pinnacle of human existence for all eternity. And if you were with us and can remember when we were going through the intertestamental stuff, we referenced Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 as a classic text that foretells this Messiah. Let's read two verses there, Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Heard that phrase before? And he came to the Ancient of Days, the son of man did, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the Jews saw that, and they said, yes, sign us up for that. This exile stuff ain't no fun. This rebuilding temples and walls and stuff, that ain't no fun. This being interspersed with other peoples, we want our king back. And they looked forward to it with zeal and passion. Crying out like they had in Egypt. But here they're crying out for the Messiah. The anointed one. The king to come and do just what Daniel said he would do. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. In general, and Matthew specifically. What did we say last week was going on right before Matthew 13? In Matthew 11 and 12. The Jews had rejected Jesus. Who was what for them? He was their Messiah. Their long-awaited king that will reign forever on David's throne over the people of God. They reject him. The religious people are trying to kill him. And what does Jesus do after being rejected? We said last week, he's now speaking in parables. To purposely hide truth about the kingdom and Jesus' workings from those who had rejected him. He was revealing truth to those who are his family, he had said. Those who do the will of his Father in heaven. And that brings us to today where we're discussing the kingdom of heaven in the context of Matthew chapter 13. And so again, what is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is going to be discussing? And in discussing, hiding from some... And explaining to others. Well it's surely referencing what we've just looked at over the course of our survey through the Old Testament this morning. But at what juncture? What point are we with that kingdom at the time that Jesus is speaking here? Has the kingdom come? Repent for the kingdom of heaven, John and Jesus had said, is at hand. So the king has come. But has he come to establish the kingdom on earth? Yes and no. Okay? So yes, the king has come and he's teaching about the kingdom and what it looks like. And he's saying change the way you think, change the way you live. Because the kingdom is at hand. It's imminent. It's right here in the midst of you. But does he set up a throne while he's here? No, he does not. Not at this point. He has come for a different reason at this point in the first advent. He has come to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death on the cross, paying the penalty of the sin debt, just like he said he would do back in that covenant with Abraham, paying the sin debt of his people who had broken his covenant so that they can enjoy a relationship with God free from the guilt and shame of sin. And then he's going to rise again, show himself alive, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. It's like we almost said that this morning, right? where he would sit down at God's right hand, awaiting the time when he would return to earth in the future and then reign and rule forever as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So no, that part's not yet. That's not what he had come to do. And what Jesus is going to explain in this discourse in Matthew 13, which is the third of the five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew, He's going to explain what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, will look like in this in-between time of his first coming and his second coming. 
We said last week that these parables are sometimes called the mystery parables of the kingdom. The word mystery in those terms means a revealing of something that has not been revealed yet. It's not trying to figure something out, but rather seeing it for the first time. And what Jesus is expounding on, teaching about here in Matthew 13, is something that has not been seen before. It's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, after the rejection of the king by the Jews, and before the return of the king to reign and rule forever. So... From where we are right now, looking back at this from our perspective, what time period is this kingdom of heaven, these mystery parables, what is it referring to? It's what we know as the time of the church. Some would call it the church age. I'm not all caught up in that. It's not real important. Jesus is going to be revealing and explaining to his disciples in this discourse, while hiding from those who are not his, what the period of the church age will look like. Because what's going to happen? King Richard's going to go away. King Jesus is going to go away. The king's not going to be present in a visible way to oversee and maintain order in his kingdom. The king's going to leave. And while he surely is in firm control, he is seated at the right hand of God in the place of honor and power over this kingdom, it's going to be up to his subjects to occupy the kingdom on earth and live in the midst of it while he's away bodily. Now, how'd that go for old Richard I? Not so well. I mean, he was fine, but his kingdom was a mess. His brother John was a lesser man than he. And while John was overseeing Richard's kingdom, he was selfish, he was incompetent, and he was corrupt. And Richard's enemies knew that Richard was away. And they knew that John was a lesser man than Richard and that they were vulnerable to attack. So the enemies kept attacking too. So do you figure that that might could happen in this kingdom in the in-between time of Jesus' first and second coming? Sure. And it's going to happen. Look at the nation of Israel. Did that kingdom just go glowingly and glorify God perfectly and honor Him as king as it should have? No, just the opposite. They rejected God as king. They wanted to be like the other nations. They fell into sin and disrepute and misrepresented God much more than they showed Him to be holy and glorious. Now, was God surprised about that? No, I wasn't surprised. God didn't wake up one day and say, Man, them people are a mess. What was I thinking? Not only did he not 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 only did he know it was going to happen, he foretold that it was going to happen and he made provisions for their failure. Back in the Abrahamic covenant, when you break the covenant, I'll pay the penalty. And then he came to repair and redeem his kingdom himself in the person of Jesus. So, do you think that maybe this church age, this interim time of God's kingdom might have some problems? Uh, yeah. And will the enemy just cede the ground that Jesus is not physically occupying? You can have it, Jesus, you won. Would he just stand by and say, ah, shucks, until he gets eternally punished? Again, no. Scripture says he knows his time is brief, so he causes as much havoc as he can. While the king is away, there will be problems, setbacks, hindrances, and opposition. And that is what Jesus is going to portray in these parables. He's going to give them a map, a cheat sheet kind of, so that they can get through that time with clarity and understanding. And so that makes these parables to understand this time frame important for who? For those who would be included in the church age from the time of the ascension of Christ to heaven until the time when he descends again to earth in order to establish his everlasting dominion. That included the apostles. That included the early church. That includes 2,000 years so far of church history including us in this day and time and those who may come after us if the Lord doesn't return in bodily form quickly. So yeah, that makes these parables awfully important to understand if we're going to navigate these times properly that we might have eyes to see what's going on around us, ears to hear, to understand, hearts to love and to treasure God, hands and feet and lips and mouths to go out and do the will of God in the midst of this time. We've got to navigate these times properly. And Jesus says, here, this is what it's going to look like. And he slides the map over to him in the form of Matthew 13. And to us. 
So it's exciting to set forth into these parables, looking through the lens that we'll be looking through, thinking about what we'll be thinking about. I'm awfully excited about it. And I hope that I'll be able to convey them properly and clearly. Again, pray for me. This scares the snot out of me. And all scripture is it's important that we rely on the spirit, but this just this, I could mess this up. I know I said that last week. Pray for me. But that's not yet. We'll dig into that next week. So for now, we get a look into the matter of application from what we've seen today. And to be honest with you, these are pretty doggone exciting application points to explore. We're going to have three K's, and, and I, hear me say this, one would probably hesitate before having application points that are KKK, okay? And, and, and I really sincerely hope that nobody's offended by me having three K's as my application points, okay? I mean, I'm trying to be nothing veiled or implied by that, okay? He's got KKK as his application, but no, don't, don't go there, okay? It just works out way too well to not use the K's. I've avoided K's in the past, by the way, just, but I couldn't this time. I don't want to be insensitive, and I'm saying that honestly. So anyway, the three application points are three Ks. The three application points are key, K-E-Y, king, and kingdom. Key, king, and kingdom. And before we jump into them, listen to me. The point of the application points is not so that you'll remember what the application points were. Not that you'll memorize key, king, and kingdom. The point of the application points is what am I supposed to do in light of what I've heard? So it's good to remember them, and that's why usually we alliterate them, put them out there in a, a memorable form. The more important question is not what were the application points, but what should I be doing in light of the application points? How should I live? What should I do differently out of these application points? So first one is key. This application point is in reference to a map. All good maps have keys, usually down in the right-hand corner, right? Those keys are explanations of what different things mean on the map. Like if you've got a, a map of the United States and every state has cities on it, but some of the cities have a star by them, the key tells us that the star means that's the capital of the state. So you look to the key, what, why does that city start? Oh, that's the capital of that state. The key gives us the answers to help us understand what's going on and how to best use the map. How far two inches is 200 miles or whatever. Okay. Use the key so that we know how to best use the map. Well, the concept of the kingdom of heaven that we've discussed today is like that key for this map of the mystery parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. We have to refer to this thought, this key, this kingdom of heaven over and over and over again as we progress through the seven parables in Matthew 13. Also, know ahead of time before we move into the, next, uh, into the first parable next week that Jesus is going to give us a key to interpret the parables when he explains two out of the seven for us. Okay? And he, only two of them. But those two serve as a key for how to interpret the other ones as well. Use the key. Don't guess. Don't try to come up with some good explanation of what the star on the map means. The star means that's the capital city. And so if Jesus tells us what certain things mean, we're going to use that as our key to say that means this. It's simple. But we overcomplicate it because we want to be clever. We want to come up with some new interpretation that's going to blow everybody's minds. No! Use the key. The parable of the soils and the parable of the wheat and tares both are given clear explanations and interpretations by Jesus himself. His explanation gives us the key to best read the map of these parables. So our application point is use the key. Let the map maker tell us what is what. You could say the key is key. Know it, use it, and let it dictate terms. Okay? But that doesn't just affect the parables of Matthew 13. The key to interpreting Scripture is what? Scripture. We always, always, always let the Bible interpret the Bible. Now what does that mean? 
It means that if Matthew says that Jesus going into Egypt after being born was the fulfillment of the prophecy that said, out of Egypt I called my son, that's in Matthew 2.15. That's a reference to Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now somebody might say, well, that's in reference to the nation of Israel. It's not in reference to Jesus. So Matthew was wrong. Really? We let the Bible interpret the Bible. Okay, listen. God had a better perspective than Hosea did. God's got a better perspective than you do. God's got a better perspective than I do. So, while Israel coming out of Egypt was a fulfillment, it wasn't the final fulfillment. And the Holy Spirit, and here's the key, the Holy Spirit who inspired, breathed out the words of the Bible, tells us all that we need to know in God's economy. So that we don't look to the hip new interpretations or the best-selling book by clever men and women, but instead we look to the very power of the Holy Spirit of God to give us what we need to understand what we need to in the Bible. And there are some things that we don't understand in the Bible. Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? The secret things belong to God. The things revealed belong to us and our sons. So we're responsible for what is revealed. Not everything that... We want is revealed in Scripture, but everything that we need is revealed in Scripture. So we let the Holy Spirit of God who inspired that Scripture interpret that Scripture. How? Through the Scripture. Well, what if it doesn't answer all of my questions? Then you don't need to know. But that's not fair. Oh, come on. Let's not go there, okay? We'll let the very power of the Holy Spirit of God, the omnipotent power of the Holy Spirit of God, give us what we need in order to understand what we need to know and understand in the Bible. Classic text here, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, he's talking, Paul talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, I don't know why this... And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It was the Holy Spirit's job to inspire the words written in the Bible and it is the Holy Spirit's job to give us understanding of them now. Don't try to figure it out for yourself because then you'll be seeing but not seeing. You'll be hearing but not comprehending. Go to God and ask for the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and insight into what He's saying and what He's meaning. Do you think that God might be able to do that? Absolutely. It's His job. Ultimately, we rely on the supernatural power of God Himself to give us what we need from His Word. He is the true key. And that's wildly important as we start into the actual parables next week. And who established the key? Well, we said the Holy Spirit. And a good transition into the next point is the king established the key. Key, king. So let's just go ahead and get this out of the way. Who's the king? Easy softball Sunday school question. Come on, who's the king? Jesus. That's right. The answer is Jesus. So that's an easy question to answer, especially for us church folk. But the harder question is, what does that mean? Jesus is king. Kanye knows it. But what's it mean? Jesus is king. So what then? How should that affect me? How should that affect you, us? How should that affect the world? Well, in our democratic republic, where it's power to the people and we work on a representative style of government, we miss the concept of what it means to be king. Listen to me. Jesus Christ is not a figurehead. Jesus Christ is not the Queen of England. Jesus did not win the majority vote to get into his position. He is, by his very nature, his very being, inherently the authority of the universe. 
Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen. The Israelites missed it. They missed their king. And what what happens? Look at this. In Acts chapter 2, in the very first sermon recorded after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, listen to what Peter is talking about to the crowds, to the Israelites. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's a reference to David from a psalm. Then Peter comes back and says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, talking about David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, to David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was... Not abandoned to Hades, nor did flesh, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then listen to this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's first point of order is to reestablish for the Israelites. This Jesus guy that you killed is your king. And not just your king. He is Lord and Christ. He is the son of man who was presented before the ancient of days. Whose kingdom will have no end. That was who Jesus was and is. Jesus is the descendant of David who would sit on David's throne. And that Jesus, that same Jesus, is both Lord and Christ. And remember, Christ means the anointed one, the king. So from the very beginning of the church, Jesus is proclaimed as king. The very beginning. So how do we apply that? We recognize him as king. We obey him as king. And we proclaim him as king. We trust and obey. There's no other way. Why? Because he's the king. We don't shrink back and talk about little baby Jesus meek and mild. And oh I hope you understand that he loves you so much and he hopes you'll choose him. No. We proclaim him as king. We know it. We do it. And we preach it. And no, the king is not here in bodily form. But as the absolute sovereign of the universe, the king is to be obeyed. He is to be honored and reverenced. We need to preach that to ourselves. We need to preach that to each other, to those around us, regardless of who's in church, who's saved, or who's willing to be or not. Listen to me. The king is coming back. And he will judge everyone according to whether they were obedient to him or not, whether they are his or not. And we need to live like it, and we need to preach like it. Jesus Christ is king. And we could spend a lot more time here, but we're losing our time. So we'll move on to our last point. Key, king, kingdom. All that we've discussed today revolves around the kingdom of heaven. What it is, how we're to function in it, what Jesus is teaching about in Matthew 13 in this certain section. We've talked about who the king of it is. And all through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we see God as king. 
And God is reigning and ruling over his creation. From Genesis in the very beginning, we see God in control. In control of what? In control of his kingdom, which he created out of nothing with the words of his mouth. He is the absolute sovereign. He is the absolute king. Now watch this. At the end of the Bible, Revelation 11, not quite the very end, but the last book. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the final conclusion of this whole kingdom deal. It's an everlasting kingdom that's never going to end. It's the final destiny of this world. All kingdoms everywhere will be visibly and surely established under the rule of King Jesus. That's going to happen. And he will purge from his kingdom all impurities and all disobedience. Know this. In eternity, there will be no struggle for power in the kingdom of God. There will be no rebellion. There will will be no usurpers. There will be no plot against the king. The Christ will rule and reign forever and ever. And anything that doesn't line up with that prior to that happening, God purges from that kingdom. And we'll see that in some of the parables in Matthew 13 too. And it's good news. But let me share something that I think is even better news than the fact that all impurities will be purged out. Listen to me. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, God incarnate, has done something marvelous, something amazing. When he died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended on high to the right hand of God, he did something amazing. Listen to me. He made this kingdom available to us. To me. I'm from Helen, y'all. There ain't no kings from Helen. There ain't no mighty rulers from Helen. And he's done what he's done and he's made this kingdom, this everlasting, sovereign kingdom available to us. And guess what? That's always been his plan. Go back to Genesis 1. And God blessed them, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's always been God's plan and God's design that his kingdom would include him ruling and us ruling with him. Watchman he said, you are very brave, God. He's made this kingdom available to us. And we get to be a part of that kingdom as those who reign and rule alongside the Christ. Revelation 1, 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen made us a kingdom. Revelation 5, 6 through 10. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Listen to this song. Saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth.
amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would not just die for me? That's amazing enough. But you would entrust your kingdom to me? You would let me reign and rule on the earth with you? (laughs) Do you not know, Paul would say, that you're going to judge angels? Do you know your place and your part in the kingdom of God? Jesus knows it. God knows it. The Spirit knows it. And I'm afraid we're blissfully ignorant about it. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. As we talk about the kingdom, as we talk about the kingdom of heaven and all the perils and all the trials and all the hardships that it brings, don't forget the blessings that it brings. This kingdom is an everlasting kingdom whose dominion will never end. And we're a part of it. And we get to reign and rule. We are not going to be taskmastered in the kingdom of heaven. We're going to joyfully, willfully, gloriously obey Jesus Christ as king. And we're going to reign with him. And that's not about us. That's about him. That's about an astrophysicist who picked a slug to help him build his rocket. And the slug's like, okay. I'll be there in a little while. Listen, why do I say that? Because we're all on the way. And God's not surprised at your lack of progress. God wants better for you. God wants you to know the blessings that he has given you as members of his kingdom, as those who will reign and rule with Christ. You ain't perfect, you ain't there, but I promise you, he's going to get you there. Because he's going to purge out all impurities from his kingdom. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Believe You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. He's going to prepare a place for us. And if he goes to prepare a place for us, he's going to come back. And he didn't just prepare a place for us and come back. He comes back, brings the place to us, sets us up as kings and queens over it to reign with him. He did it. He's doing it and he's going to do it. And then this last verse in all this, I think this just just puts a bow and a name tag. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's not up there grudgingly saying these idiots, these dummies. It's his good pleasure to give us this kingdom. He enjoys it way more than you do. Behold how great a love the Father has shown us. Amazing love. How can it be? You, my king, would die for me. Amazing love, I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor you. In all I do, King Jesus, I honor you. You are my king. Let's remember that as we move into Matthew 13 next week. Let's remember that as we move into Sunday afternoon and Monday and Wednesday and Friday and everything in between. Let's pray. When I fear my faith will fail. He will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail. He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. Through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Father we proclaim that you will. You are and you will. And someday, truly, surely, your kingdom will be established and we will reign and rule with you for eternity in joy that is unspeakable, incomprehensible to us right now. But may we now, God, now, today, know the trueness, the reality of that kingdom in our hearts. 
May we know Jesus as king. May we obey Jesus as king. May we proclaim him as king. As we take your word and the power of your spirit to know what you're saying to us, as we recognize Jesus as king and as we proclaim his kingdom, operating as those who are your ambassadors for this kingdom in this world today. You've done great things, God. And greater things are yet to come. We praise you for your power, your grace, your love, and your plan, which is perfect. And that includes us. Thank you so much. We praise you and ask you to do what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. And just stand and receive the same benediction you got last week because it's just... Because. It just works too well. Now. 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 May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay neat with us if you can.